Welcome to the Manufacturing Employer Podcast, where we talk workplace culture and all things related to the strategies that drive exceptional environments for employees. You'll hear conversations with those in the manufacturing space tasked with making their workplace better. Employee engagement, benefits, onboarding, hiring, we'll be discussing the working experience from top to bottom. Let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Employer. I'm your host, John Franco, co-founder of Gorilla76. We are the industrial marketing agency. We help manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. On today's show, we have Maggie Schrock joining us. Throughout her career, Maggie has partnered with organizations from seven people in size all the way up to 33,000. She spent the majority of her professional journey with both U.S.-based and global startups and scale-ups. She finds great satisfaction in shaping the people, operations, and culture functions to ensure close alignment with business strategy. While she's been a Forex founder of the People Function, she's also owned components of business operations, strategy, IT, and project management. Maggie graduated from Southeast Missouri State University with a degree in business management, emphasis on organizational leadership. She obtained a strategic HR leadership certificate from Cornell ILR School, as well as currently holds an active professional and human resources certification. Additionally, Maggie is... Lean Six Sigma Green Belt Certified. Maggie, that's quite the bio. Welcome to the show. And you ready to get into this a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you having me. I have been a huge fan of Gorilla 76 for a long time. And I think that a large majority of the reason is because of your posts and the engagement that your employees show just around the excitement around Gorilla 76's mission and the culture you have built. So I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you. That's quite the way to open up the episode, I guess. That I appreciate it. And yeah, I think we just with, with I'm assuming you're talking about like our LinkedIn content and and yeah, yeah I basically live and breathe on LinkedIn. So <laughs> well, I mean, it's a great place to live and breathe when you're in a business working with other businesses. It seems like a no-brainer. It seems to be one of the few social platforms where everyone still kind of gets along and it's more of a positive thing than a negative thing outside of some of the people that just infiltrate your inbox and try to sell you things outside of that, it's a pretty good place to be. Yep. Totally agree. Well, I try to keep these episodes, even though we're a marketing agency, I try to keep them fairly void of marketing. But I think there's an element of your marketing, your name of your company, Loam Culture, that's like super core to your philosophy. And, and I have to ask for our audience... What does Loam mean? Why did you choose it as the name of your company? Again, I think this ties back to just kind of your entire vision. So Loam, so for the listeners, that's L-O-A-M. So Loam is actually a type of soil that is very conducive to growth. So it's essentially equal parts sand, clay, and silt. So it's generally very fertile. So once I really nailed down the mission and the strategy of the company, I really wanted to give it a name that was unique and meant something versus just Maggie Schrock Consulting or, you know, something like that, a little bit generic. So when I really think about the culture within organizations, I'm seeing it as a very intentional way a company operates. So it's not pizza parties and... Hawaiian shirt Fridays. Yeah, exactly. Or virtual happy hours. It's fundamentally how a company is operating. Based on my experience, I really see three main components that surface as being part, like core essential to a culture. And it's, of course, the people. 
but it's also your processes and your technology. So when companies think about three, these three things in a very healthy and united way, it helps in creating an environment that is conducive to growth, just like that analogy back to soil. So I offer a number of different things with Loam, but one of them is culture clarity workshops. And so essentially what I'm doing is helping companies align their primary business objectives with the people, processes, and technology they need to support that growth. That makes a lot of sense. And I think something I was getting wrong for a, a long time at Gorilla was I used to think our culture was pretty much entirely rooted in our core values, which I think is still the case and very much and often I think of that more as that people process because we have to hire to those core values. We have to, that's a huge part of the characteristics we're looking for when we hire, but like the process side of it and the technology side of it, those other two parts to me are what I was missing for a long time. I think I am not a process oriented person. In fact, I like am probably drive everybody crazy at Gorilla. I have a to do here where I need to update a process actually, but I'm like, well, it's in my head and I'm the only one working on it. So why does anyone else need to know it? But I, that's a terrible mindset. It needs to be documented. But I guess, can you elaborate more on, well, the different parts, the people, the process, the technology, those kind of three legs of the stool, so to speak, and why, particularly why that process and technology side of it is so important? Because again, I think the people is always the obvious, like, well, our culture is great because we have great people. But what about these other two elements? So if we're viewing culture really in the context of how a company operates, I found that when any one of these components is out of balance, the company is going to suffer to varying degrees. So I'll kind of hit each of these at a very high level. So the people component is obviously about your people. It's about how your people work together towards shared goals. It's the entire employee experience journey. So it's the types of people that we bring into a company who we promote and who we part ways with. It's the what we're accepting in terms of behaviors and how we engage with one another. The processes then is more about your strategic planning at the company level and then being able to distill those company goals down to your teams and your individuals. So you're all, again, working toward shared goals. People have goals, they have expectations, they know how they are fundamentally making an impact in the organization. It's about how the company makes decisions, having communication guidelines, and then generally having a consistent standard operating procedures across the company, how you manage projects within the company. So it's more, again, about the processes that are core and central to how the organization operates. And then the technology is really what tools the company needs to support both the people and the processes. Obviously, we live in a world full of technology and there's no way of getting around that. And so it's really about finding like the best tools that are going to support the type of culture that your organization needs. So as an example, let's just say a company has a primary objective in 2024 to launch a brand new product line. It needs to fundamentally understand from a cultural perspective what it's going to take to make that happen. So what people, what skills do we need? Do we have that internally already? Do we need to develop people? Do we need to hire externally? Do we have the right behaviors and mindsets within the team in order to reach this goal? And then do we have the right processes in place to make that happen? And then similarly, do we have the right tech to support the achievement of that goal? That's super interesting. I think a lot about just how different technology choices can label your agent as an agency 
one type of agency versus another. And what I mean by that is like, and both platforms are great, but are they a Zoom company? Are they a Microsoft Teams company? Are they a Mac? Do they use Mac computers or are they a PC shop? I mean, that does say something about the culture. And I, I, I think you're talking much more specifically about getting into the tools and how they tie back to process and the technology and how it ties back to process. But it is interesting, even just from a optics standpoint, what different choices in technology can mean. I talk a little bit more about that actually, and I think in this next question, so. Yeah, well, I mean, is there a particular leg to this three-legged stool, so to speak, that seems to often be shorter? I mean, I definitely feel like all three are equally important, but if I had to pick, and this might be an unpopular opinion, especially coming from the tech startup space, but I would actually say that of the three, technology is probably the shortest leg. I'm saying this because there's no shortage of it out there. That said, you know, what often, what I've seen happen at least is people can get really easily swayed by new trends or the sexy tech that is going to promise you the world. It's going to do everything for you, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what happens is companies end up testing a lot of different technology internally and maybe externally too, client facing, and they never really fully commit to one that's going to work best. So what this does is it just creates a ton of confusion internally when it comes to process flow, and you're incurring a lot of extra costs for under or completely unutilized technology. So again, while I do believe that all three components are important, if I had to choose, I would I would say it's probably the, the tech side of things. Is there a leg that seems to be longer often or can be longer? It's something that typically gets the lion's share of attention and budget? I mean, I would I would guess the people, but I don't know. Ideally, it would be the people. But what I have seen, and it's relatively ironic, is that I think that's why there's so much misalignment is that the tech and the processes, namely the marketing processes. <laughs> so sorry, John. No, I mean, it, that, we see that. Yeah. I mean, when you're thinking about the attention and the budget and just the central commitment and where time is spent the most, these two things, tech and process, tend to get the lion's share when really it should be the people component. I think what I have found coming in as the first person on the people side for five different startups is that companies tend to severely underestimate the cost and the complexity of people. So it's not only the initial cost. So if we're talking about base salary, it's not just that. It's also the cost to retain these individuals and respond to market fluctuations, trends within the employee market, and just general cost of living considerations. No one is going to be more excited about a company's mission and success than the majority owners. And in the end, they are the ones that are going to gain the most benefit if they have a successful exit. But what happens is somewhere along the line, leaders tend to think that everyone shares this same opinion and this same excitement for the mission and that they're because of that, they're willing to work for less and or put up with toxic environments to be part of something that potentially only has a 10% chance of becoming extraordinary. So now some people, don't get me wrong, will absolutely work for less and deal with toxic environments for that possibility that they're going to walk away from millions if this company has a successful exit. But it's not the majority um, based on what I have seen. And it's also just like 
something for me is just like, it doesn't have to be toxic. You can still make millions and you can still do all these things and it not be toxic. And I just said that like making millions is is just like this thing that's easy to do. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, but I guess success in business does not have to be cutthroat and just full of toxic elements, I guess. Something we find ourselves often is, I mean, basically if a client is in growth mode, a manufacturing client, and they come to us or we've come to them or whatever, like we're having a discussion and they are interested in growing, there's basically two answers or there's two things they can tell us essentially. I need more leads and I need more business opportunities or I need more people, which kind of leads into my next question. But to your point about marketing processes and sometimes unfairly getting the budget. I don't disagree. At the end of the day, you can have all the business in the world, but if you don't have the people to do the work, it's all ultimately just going to have disappointed clients, which in the long run is going to do way more harm than good. I think that's where there's the misalignment is because sometimes people can think employees are completely replaceable and dispensable. And I'm not saying this is the case everywhere. But again, going back to the cost factor, yes, you could probably find someone else to do the job. However, it costs money to replace that person. A lot of money. A lot of money. It costs a lot of money to hire new people, go through a three-month interview process to then train them and onboard them. So if you've gone through all the time already to find that the right person, you want to keep them. A number I track at Gorilla is average tenure and in the agency space and being a young company, I guess we're not super young anymore, but still relatively young. It's something that we measure in months and not in years at this point. And right now our average 10 years about 31 months, which which for us is towards, it continues to go up. Obviously you hire new people, it drops a little, it goes up more, but I guess the higher that number is, I can kind of directly correlate just that general feeling at Gorilla that things are going better. That So like, yes, tenure people cost more money the longer they are at your company. But to your point earlier, the costs of turnover and hiring and just efficiencies and I mean, whatever, we're preaching to the choir here talking to each other, but keeping those people engaged is huge. Right now, our, our contacts in the manufacturing space are often telling us how hard it is to find people. So in an already small pool of potential workers, especially as we look at some of the trade and the skilled labor that is needed, what can companies do differently to kind of win that war, I guess, on talent? I think that since the pandemic and just the many layoffs that we saw in 2023, People are really rethinking their relationship with employers. And I think that's regardless of skilled or unskilled. I was doing something. I can't remember what I was doing, but I was doing some research and found that 1.4 million people started businesses in Q3 of 2023. Holy cow. Which is up 11% from the previous year. And I think that's coming from a number of different factors and considerations. But the truth is, is people are understanding there are different ways of working now. So, but I think industry aside, there are some few key fundamentals that are just important to attract and retain people. So being fairly compensated, having a psychologically safe work environment, understanding goals, and being treated as adults, which is not often the case, which is really interesting to me. And then understanding growth opportunities, both from a 
like a career ladder perspective, but also just from a skills perspective. If you were to go out and Google, why is there a labor shortage in the manufacturing industry right now, you're going to get 35 million results. People tend to really overcomplicate what it is that employees want. So I often reference Maslow's hierarchy. I don't know. I think hopefully a lot of people are familiar with that. There's basic fundamental needs that people want up the hierarchy. It kind of, it goes up to self-actualization. So in between there, there's lots of different things that are going to help motivate people. And so I don't think that you really need to overcomplicate it with going up to this self-actualization level. There are just basic human fundamental rights and needs that people expect. So for your contacts in the manufacturing space who you know might be finding it hard to fill roles, there potentially is a much deeper issue at play than just filling the roles. There is nothing more powerful in solving a problem than to just go out and speak with your current employees and really identify, number one, you know, what do they love about working here? And number two, what don't they love? I'm also going to say that I think behind every company that might be having trouble filling roles, there's likely an HR person telling some executive why they can't fill these roles. And that executive is not listening. I think HR gets a really bad reputation when what I have seen over 15 years of working in the space is that HR individuals genuinely do care. They are here to be an advocate for employees, but oftentimes what they're up against is executive leadership that is not willing to listen to them as a strategic thought partner. So yeah, I mean, I would encourage employees that may be listening to still lean on HR individuals if they're having issues. I was in a meeting the other day and the HR person was in the room and I don't want to say attacked because that wasn't the case, but she was very, she was definitely challenged on why they're seeing a lot of turnover. And, and she said, well, the work we're doing, it, it's not in the manufacturing space. Actually, it was a work for some, it was another kind of side project I've got going and working on, but the work is dangerous, legitimately dangerous. It's with a clientele that can be very difficult to manage. They're paying these people 15 bucks an hour. Well, I mean, she's like, guys, there's only so much I can do here when it's 15 bucks an hour and they can go to a, a restaurant or they can go to a fast food restaurant and make more money than this in a way less. I'm not saying the clientele that I'm sure there's plenty of drive through workers out there that are like, yeah, I'm not dealing with the friendliest clientele either when they come through my drive through But at least from a danger perspective, it, it's not that bad. But like, well, I mean, how can you retain people if you're paying them 15 bucks an hour? I know you have a lot of experience working with startups, specifically in the tech space. What can older, more established companies do to keep up? A, a lot of our listeners represent established manufacturing companies that have been around for a bit, but what can they learn from the more agile, smaller companies? Where are their lessons to learn, I guess? Well, first, so let me just say, and you probably don't know this, but I don't know, probably a thousand years ago, I started my career at Newell Rubbermaid. Oh, nice. And then I also worked for an aerospace manufacturing company for about three years after college. So while I have been removed from the industry for years, at some point I did live and really breathe that type of work environment in the past. Second, 
to respond to your question, I have really loved my work over the past nine years within the tech startup space. But the reality is that 90% of startups fail. They are under immense pressure by venture capital and private equity firms to achieve goals at a ridiculously high rate. And because of that, a lot of this deep intentional work gets pushed to the wayside. And I mean the deep intentional work on the culture side. I can't tell you how many of these startups I've walked into and they didn't even have a documented strategic plan for the company that employees understood and were actually working toward shared goals. But here's what I do think more established companies could consider that startups do tend to think about more consistently. So the promoting innovation and creativity at all levels of the organization, really being able to challenge the status quo at all levels. So really listening to your employees at all levels and hearing their ideas. I think inclusion and diversity in leadership positions. And this, I think startups may do a little bit better of a job of this, but I definitely don't think it's perfect by any means. But then also offering opportunities for skill set growth and career growth. All this to say, I fully recognize that some of this is easier said than done, especially in union led environments. Something I noticed on your website, which I thought was really cool, was the native land acknowledgement. I think it's a simple but incredibly powerful way to adhere to more progressive DEIA principles. Can you talk a bit more about your decision to do such there and any effect it's had on your company culture. I think we have a lot of listeners that are looking for ways to improve on this front. We know DEIA is important. I think it's often something that it's like, well, what are the different ways we can can try to address this? But I think many times they just don't know where to start. Yeah. So the land acknowledgement was something that I actually experienced a few years ago when I was part of a group that, that met weekly. The facilitator of that group would start each meeting with the land acknowledgement statement. So it didn't matter what we were talking about or the purpose of the meeting, but she started with that acknowledgement. And it really stuck with me. So I started, when I started to research it a little bit more, and as I better understood it, you know, I really felt that it aligned well for me personally and professionally. So personally, I grew up in the country just surrounded by nature, and I was fortunate enough to have connected pretty deeply with the earth from a young age. So even when I was younger, I was very intrigued with Native American history, the practices, and just the general respect for the earth and the land. So professionally, this land acknowledgement, I think, really aligns well with where the name originated from and just in general what the term loam means. And to be honest, like with loam being newer, I'm still very much exploring my own social responsibility initiative. That said, you know, I feel it's important just to acknowledge and respect our foundations and our roots, which generally is where I start with a new client. In terms of implementing DEI I really feel that it needs to start with inclusion. I think the mistake a lot of companies make is they will focus on the diversity from a numbers perspective. So we need X percent of diverse population in order to meet goals. But what happens if is if they're not really truly an inclusive work environment and you bring in a lot of diverse perspectives or peoples from different backgrounds, you aren't going to be su- like supporting them. The environment and the culture really has to have a, a, a commitment to 
inclusion in order for it to be a successful strategic part of an organization. I really liked it. I think it's a really cool way that a smaller, newer company can, because I think that's the challenge we face often. We're, we're getting bigger now and now we can make a difference with some, with hiring and a variety of different things. But when you're small, it's like you can only do so much. But I think that was, a, I, I had never seen that before. And I don't know, I just a tip of the cap to you because I was like, well, this is, this is really cool. And, and I, I'm similar. Like I, I was out in nature yesterday afternoon, duck hunting. I run a lot. I fish a lot. I also, as a kid, grew up like very interested in Native American culture. So I don't know. That jumped out at me and I was like, I, I want to definitely learn more about this. Well, on my website, in the footer, there is a link directly to the Native Land Digital. So anyone can go click on that link and drop in their address and it will tell them basically from a historical perspective, like what tribes Oh, cool. Yeah, originated on the land, yeah. All right, as we look ahead, this episode's going to be live here in just a couple of weeks, so the, the year will still be young. But looking ahead to 2024, what do you predict this will be the year of on the kind of HR culture front, I guess? Yeah, I think everyone has lots of different opinions and trying to predict what everyone needs to be paying attention to. But I, I mean, from my perspective, I think there needs to be a focus on rebuilding trust. So kind of going back to what I said earlier is 20, the pandemic and 2023 with the layoffs was hard for a lot of people and not just the people that that got laid off, but just the perception of the relationship between the employer and the employee. So I think organizations are really going to have to focus on how to rebuild that trust. And similarly, the retention. So again, rethinking the relationship with work and a lot of people are choosing to start their own businesses. I think DEI will continue to be, I hope it's not a trend. I think it will continue to be, you know, at the forefront of HR professionals' minds. Upskilling and reskilling, again, I think with things like AI and other innovations that are coming out, and this shouldn't just be HR teams, but organizations in general are going to really have to think about how to upskill people and or reskill them in order to get the work done. And I do think that this whole debate around hybrid remote on-site will continue to be a conversation. And I know that Rule of 76 just went remote a while back, so kudos to you, but I fully recognize that that work environment doesn't work for everyone. It works for us, but it doesn't mean it works for the next person for sure, especially in the manufacturing space, right? And I think a challenge they face often is there are some executive type of roles. There are the the office type of roles that in theory can be remote, but what does that say to the people who do have to show up every day? So finding that balance is, is, is a challenge. Absolutely. And it's different for every single organization. And so that's one of the things you really have to think about when you're strategically planning your culture. Well, this was great. Anything we didn't talk about that you'd like to cover before we kind of sign off here? I just like to say that when you're viewing culture in the way that I'm describing it, it means that your culture will need to evolve as a company grows. So what worked for a company of 10 likely will not work for a company of 30 and so on. 
So my goal is really to help companies treat culture as a strategic function of the business, similar to how you would put together a product roadmap or engineering, customer success, marketing. Culture is a continuous process that really needs to be aligned with your business objectives. And those objectives should be changing on a quarterly and annual basis. So therefore, your culture really must be able to evolve along with it. I love it. What a great way to kind of put a bow on this. Thanks so much, Maggie, for spending some time with us today. How can our listeners learn more? Get get in touch with you if they want to, I don't know, pick your brain on anything, continue the conversation. So my email is maggie at loamculture.com. And I, like I mentioned earlier, live and breathe LinkedIn. So I'm on there all the time. I do have an Instagram account at loam underscore culture as well. I am happy to speak with anyone and let them pick my brains and we can go from there. And I think LinkedIn was how you and I connected in the first place. So yes, it seems like, yeah. So man, what you're right. What a great tool. I don't even realize how much of different opportunities and and things have, have kind of started there. It has been so immensely beneficial in making new connections and learning new things. Like I learned something new daily from the people that I'm following on LinkedIn. Appreciate all you're doing on the front of making workplaces better than you found them. I think it's incredibly important. I think it's what's going to determine success for so many companies. So thanks for joining today. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Employer. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Employer Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about our approach to industrial marketing and the role that company culture has in moving manufacturing forward, visit Gorilla76.com.